Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Thank you very much for that kind introduction and uh, for the uh, invitation to be here uh, this afternoon. It's a, a great pleasure and a privilege. Uh, we're discussing social justice on Aboriginal land, land that was unjustly taken from a people who were and continue to be unjustly subjected to the crime of colonisation. I pay my respects to the traditional owners and the custodians of this land and to the spirit of collective resistance, collective dreaming and collective hope. Um, because I've got the pulpit, I get to uh, be really self-indulgent now and tell whatever stories I like. So I'm going to begin with a, uh, a story from uh, my family. A few years ago, oh, I, I should preface the story by saying that um, my partner and I are very strict religious devotees of the teachings of Mark Latham. Uh, we always read to our children at night. Um, so this particular night a few years ago, my son Gian, who was probably about eight or nine at the time, um, he didn't want me to read to him, he didn't want to read to me this particular night, but he wanted us to just lie next to each other on his bed and read our respective books, which was really nice. And we did that for a while. And then uh, he turned to me and he said, you know, Papa, I can't really get to sleep at night unless I read first. And I said, me too, son. And he said, that's because when I become an adult, I want to be like you. And I was just so, I just melted, you know. And just, but then there was a little pause. <laughs> and he said, well, not bald. And then there was another little pause. He said, or fat. <laughs> now, the reason I tell that story is um, my son is the king of the one-liner. I mean, he's just brilliant. Uh, he just got this incredible sense of timing and uh, he, uh, he just has us wound around his little finger every time we try and enter into any kind of debate or argument with him. But on this occasion, he wasn't trying to be a smart-ass. He was actually stating the obvious just in case I didn't get it because he was aware of my intellectual limitations and the fact that the limits of his desire uh, for emulation was our love of reading and that was it, no, nothing more. Um, in many ways, uh, what I'm going to say to you, what I'm going to share with you this afternoon is uh, a bit like what Gian did with me, uh, not because I've got any judgement about your uh, intellectual uh, limitations or otherwise, but because I think it's sometimes very useful, I find it useful uh, to hear the obvious stated um, maybe because I take a long time to learn things and maybe because it's so easy to forget the things that are screamingly obvious uh, because in, in most respects that's what we're up against is uh, this giant battle to be able to tell uh, the obvious, to state the obvious and really 
the obvious that I'm referring to is the a very simple dictum that uh, a good society is one that does not humiliate its members. It's as simple as that. Uh, and the way we learn that is from the people who end up being excluded systematically, uh, end up being humiliated, end up being pushed to the margins uh, because the truth told by the people on the margins is always louder than the lies told about them. I'm going to share with you three quotes now and uh, uh, you have a think about uh, how obvious it is that uh, two of these <coughs> are absolutely spot on and the third is uh, sadly, sadly a lie. Um, the first one is from Vivienne Forrester. A, uh, a French writer, um, she wrote a book called The Economic Horror back in 1996 and she said, the battle is brewing against the excluded. They really take up too much space. They are not excluded nearly enough. The next one comes from a woman who wrote to me recently uh, in the wake of the, uh, the, the change uh, pushing uh, around 80,000 single parents onto the lower New Start allowance. Uh, she wrote, I am a sole parent after the death of my partner in a motorbike fatality. I've been raising our son for the past 13 years on my own. This has been a huge effort on the pension. In January, I lost $137 a fortnight. We are struggling bad. At times I feel we may go under. I'm constantly stressed due to the health issues. It's hard for me to find work. My heart goes out to all parents struggling at the moment. I fear for our future. I've given up meat, unaffordable. We have no social outings and I can't remember the last time I had a bowl of fruit on the table. Third quote comes from uh, the aforementioned Mark Latham uh, in his recently published quarterly essay. And he wrote, the problem of the underclass is an inability to make good choices. I'll put it to you uh, that the problem in Australia is not uh, any inability to make good choices by any uh, purported underclass. Our problem uh, is not the idleness of the poor, so, uh, as it is often claimed. Our problem, pure and simple, is inequality. And this is a social question. It's not a question of behaviour. Uh, we do irreparable harm when we turn it into a question of individual behaviour. And sadly, there's a political consensus uh, between both sides of politics that tends to do that. Uh, people are blamed for their own exclusion. <coughs> it's a matter of deep shame that a wealthy nation like ours uh, has kept our unemployment benefits deliberately low as a means of humiliating the very people they were originally designed to assist. Uh, charities like Vinnie's uh, will be there to give people a, a helping hand, but the, the fact remains what people want, what people need is not charity, it's justice. 
and it is a means of further humiliating people by forcing them to rely on charity. We support people uh, being assisted into the paid workforce, but the time has come to abandon the foolish notion that forcing people into deeper poverty can somehow improve their chances of employment. You don't build people up by putting them down. You don't help someone into work by forcing them more deeply into poverty. The greatest power for progressive social change lies precisely with the people who experience exclusion, uh, for whom it is the bread and butter of everyday life. The people who can best define and interpret the reality of exclusion and socio-economic insecurity are also, I believe, the only ones who can in the end determine both the means towards and the ends of any program for social inclusion. I want to reflect with you today not on how the powers above need to better control, corral, coerce or cajole the people who live at the rough end of Struggle Street and I have no interest in improving the blunt tools and sharp weapons such as compulsory income management that are brought out to decide from above how to improve the lives of the people uh, who live below. Rather, I want us to think together on how best the reality of exclusion might intrude into our own thinking just as it intrudes into the all-too-neat packaging of the all-too-unjust and unequal consumerist society. For me, the way I looked at the world changed forever when I first read Franz Fanon, the psychiatrist and great theorist of the confluence between colonisation of land and the crushing of the human spirit. He consciously opted into the struggle for social justice. He didn't hide behind his science. Rather, in fidelity to the pursuit of objective reality, he took sides with the people he understood to be crushed and silenced. He identified both the enormity of the problem and the specificity of the solution. He wrote back in uh, around 1961, what counts today the question that is looming on the horizon is the need for a redistribution of wealth. Humanity must reply to this question or be shaken to pieces by it. I would uh, add to that that along with a, a redistribution of wealth, we need to actively engage in a massive redistribution of hope. Fanon wrote eloquently about the systematic negation of the other person and the furious determination to deny the other person all attributes of humanity. I want to say a few things about this negation. I want to reflect with you about the people who are made to feel as if they are nothing. You know the people I mean. Uh, they often populate our local courts, our emergency rooms in hospitals, uh, the people who are considered to be nobody, of no value, uh, 
they are made to feel that they are constructed as being socially nothing. It's offensive to think of someone as socially nothing. It's offensive because by naming that process for what it is, we strip the veneer away from a society that does not wish to admit that it renders whole groups of people into this condition of social nothingness. Being socially nothing means being not seen as a member of society, as being residual somehow. It means being seen only as a threat, as is very clearly and overtly the case with asylum seekers. The dominant story in Australia today appears to be that people legitimately seeking asylum in our country are a threat either to our way of life or to our national security. Uh, the people are constructed as being socially nothing. Our history since colonisation has not only accepted exclusion, it has enshrined it as structure, as attitude, as instrumental practice. Rather than uh, institutionalising exclusion, it is time, however, to get ready for and time to embrace the intrusion of the excluded as the agents of radical social change. Slavoj Žižek, uh, the maverick Slovenian philosopher you might have seen on Q&A from time to time poking his pencil into Tony Jones's guts, um, uh, famously spoke about the, the ancient Greeks having a, a word for what they felt was the intrusion of the excluded into the socio-political domain, and that word was democracy. Uh, you're well aware of the disproportionate rate of incarceration of uh, Aboriginal adults and young people in this country because, of course, being locked up follows hot on the heels of being locked out. I'm reminded of the poem by Jack Davis, uh, which I, I find very hard to read, but I wish to share with you, uh, on the death in custody of 16-year-old John Pat in 1983. He writes of the dangerous power of Gadia or Whitefella law. Right of life, the pious said, forget the past, the past is dead but all I see in front of me is a concrete floor, a cell door and John Pat. Ah, tear out the page, forget his age. Thin skull, they cried, that's why he died, but I can't forget the silhouette of a concrete floor, a cell door and John Pat. The end product of Gadya law is a viaduct for fang and claw and a place to dwell like Roeburn's hell of a concrete floor, a cell door and John Pat. He's there. Where? There in our minds now, deep within, there to prance, a sidelong glance, a silly grin, to remind them all of a gudya wall, a concrete floor, a cell door and John Pat. Rather than being listened to, the downtrodden in the prosperous countries of the world are being trodden on even more. Their futures are determined from above, 
they're told from above what is good for them, how they must improve, how they must change. Feminist writer Carol Harnish wrote a now famous essay in 1969 entitled The Personal is Political. These words became one of the most important insights not just for the women's liberation movement but for all who are committed to progressive social justice and social change. Changing the world is as deeply personal as it is broadly collective. I've had the joy of knowing many, many women and men who engage in this daily practice of learning the art of gentle revolution, to use Lunig's beautiful coinage. I love listening to their stories and watching them at work on their oft-disparaged project of building a new society. Um, sometimes it means helping people climb the walls that are built around them uh, and scaling those walls, but never forgetting that there's no point in just scaling those walls unless we tear the damn things down, even if it's just one brick at a time. Uh, the political is at the heart of the concrete conditions in which a person lives. Our lives are bound by economic, social and legislative structures. But then the analysis of these conditions gives rise to a deeply personal commitment to change them because we feel that whatever is happening to people who are being pushed out uh, we have a stake in that and we have an obligation to stand in solidarity with the people who are suffering the effects of exclusion. There are little uh, rays of hope all over the place and uh, we, should never, we should never fear, we don't, we, we, we don't have the right to afford the, uh, the luxury of despair or pessimism, I believe, and uh, I say that because everyone's looking a bit serious. Um, I remember a few years back it was during one of the Howard era iterations of so-called welfare reform. Funnily enough, it also was uh, designed to deal a blow to, uh, to people uh, who were um, sole parents. And um, I was sent out to, uh, to criticise it, of course, and um, uh, say what I had to say against it. And... Um, I remember I had to do a lot of media at the time. You know, there was a lot of interest why the St Vincent de Paul Society would be opposing the government's wonderful intentions of helping people by making life harder for them. And um, due to uh, my own uh, deeply flawed um, subjective view of uh, what to expect from different media outlets, I'd done the, some of the shock jocks and knew what to expect there, but then I stupidly, naively had an interview with a, an ABC radio station and thought, oh, they'll go a bit softer, you know. They'll, they'll be a little bit more sympathetic. Stupid, John. So it was a really robust exchange. And uh, the interviewer absolutely took the government's line and was absolutely attacking me. It was great. I loved every minute of it. You know, I really enjoy a good stoush. But she was going, so, John... Uh, the St Vincent de Paul Society uh, wants single mothers to sit on their backsides at home and get money for nothing instead of getting them to go out and work and be a good example to their children. Is that what you want? And I thought, mate, game on here. This is really good. Anyway, 
We got to the end of the, uh, the interview and um, she said to me, John, are you still there? And uh, I said, yeah. And she said, um, John, we're off air now, but I just need to say to you that the ABC needs to be completely impartial. I said, oh, thank you. I really do appreciate that. And she said, but John, between ourselves, I'm a single mum myself and I reckon this legislation sucks big time. <laughs> Go, Vinnies. <laughs> the women and men who are not listened to, even though they're not listened to, they still have their stories, as you know only too well. They still carry the knowledge and it's really privileged as knowledge, it's really respected as knowledge, but they carry the knowledge of what has happened, what is happening, and what needs to happen. The uh, dominant discourse tends to ask the question, what is wrong with you? But the real question that needs to be posed and is posed from the grassroots is, what has happened to us. Big difference. One tries to construct a behavioural disorder, a dysfunctionality, a pathologising or a criminalising of the individual or of the community or of the cohort. The other seeks a genuinely historical and structural perspective. Another kind of world is possible because the truth that is told by those who live on the margins is the only truth that is worth listening to. If we look a bit closer, we'll actually see that the margins are not that marginal. They're actually right at the heart of society. It just depends on where you stand and whether our eyes are open. The poverty that is experienced by people is a form of oppression. It's not bad luck, it's not bad choice, it is something done to, historically and structurally. I believe that we're bound to join in that struggle for liberation even when our efforts seem paltry and inadequate. In the words of the Honduran poet Roberto Sosa, together we can construct with all our songs a bridge to dignity so that one by one the humiliated of the earth may pass. Whether we're thinking of people who are excluded because of their marginal attachment to the labour market, their gender, their cultural or linguistic background, the social relations in which their disability is constructed or their aboriginality, social exclusion is a structural symptom rather than the effect of personal choice or personal deficit. That this is the concrete reality that must intrude into our thinking and our practice if we want a society that is built on the uh, premise of egalitarianism rather than the manufacture of profit. I have to be careful when I speak that way. Uh, soon after working for the St Vincent de Paul Society in 2001, I was outed by that highly esteemed academic journal, the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, <laughs> as I was outed as being evidence of the communist control of the St Vincent de Paul Society. Um, Michael Duffy wrote a piece which began, Comrade Falzon has been reading more Das Kapital than the Bible. 
um, which gave us the opportunity to quote the beautiful words from Helda Camara, the Brazilian archbishop who famously said, uh, when I give bread to the poor, I'm called a saint, but when I ask why they have no bread, I'm called a communist. But um, since I've been outed as a Marxist, I'll quote Marx for you, um, because I think he well sums up um, the political climate in many respects. Um, uh, he said, Groucho I'm talking about, of course, um, he famously said, these are my principles, but if you don't like them, I have others. Um, back in uh, 1996, God help me, I was uh, working full-time on my doctoral thesis and uh, living in Liverpool on the outskirts, the southwestern outskirts of, of Sydney with my partner. And uh, I, was, I remember I was sitting on the porch of our flat one afternoon because uh, all the reading had done my head in. And I was having a break, uh, taking a quiet smoke, as I did in those days, trying to digest what I'd been reading. And just at that moment, a woman and a man walked by. No, it's not a PJ Harvey song I'm quoting him. The man was a few steps ahead of the woman and uh, he was yelling at the top of his voice. And he, he yelled out these words and they stuck with me because they crystallised all that I'd been trying to struggle with in what I was researching. He yelled out, I know people, I've been to the factory where they're made. And I thought, man, that is good stuff. That is really so true. So I ran inside and I stole the words, of course. I mean, you know, I, being a very unethical scholar, I didn't go and ask him written permission to use them. I'm not claiming them as my own, at least, I'm being that honest. But I just thought the factory where they're made or unmade, for that matter, the factory where we're unmade. Uh, I thought of the people I'd, I'd known, starting with my own old man who was unmade in the factory. In his case, he got cancer from uh, having to use solvents uh, when he was working at Boral on road materials. But how many stories do we hear every day of people who are uh, physically or spiritually or economically, uh, socially, politically unmade in their day-to-day -day existence by the factory, so to speak? People made and then pulled apart by social and economic structures that dehumanise, that compartmentalise, that destroy, that humiliate, that blame. People made to feel that their lives are worth very little, that their position at the bottom of the heap completely excludes and effectively disempowers them and that they deserve it, that they brought it on themselves. As far as the intersection between the law and people experiencing exclusion is concerned, it's often as if people are being systematically prepared or made for a series of collisions with state instrumentalities of surveillance, control, coercion and sometimes, of course, uh, ultimately incarceration. As one solicitor working primarily on legal aid cases uh, told me recently, I love being able to offer some advocacy for the people who've had no one to advocate for them. The tragedy is that the first time they're offered some advocacy is because they've fallen foul of the law. The law, of course, develops as a reflection of social relations in a given society within its given, uh, within its given economic formation. 
we do well to remember the anonymous piece of doggerel from 15th century England at the time of the enclosure laws uh, that were being uh, felt especially by people who were very vulnerable depending on those commons uh, to collect wood and to, uh, to hunt uh, small animals and so forth. Uh, the piece of doggerel goes, and I believe it's just, just as pertinent today as, as, uh, as then. The law locks up the man or woman who steals the goose from off the common but leaves the bigger villain loose who steals the common from under the goose. The law does indeed continue to lock up the man or woman who's more likely to be from a disadvantaged background, often starting them on their bleak journey as juveniles. It's no surprise that incarceration often begets even more incarceration rather than even a notional rehabilitation or support. Quite the contrary, the people who've been pushed to the margins, locked out, are either pathologised or criminalised in either case they're always problematised. Professor John McKnight, uh, with whom I, I don't agree on many things, uh, put very beautifully uh, this phrase, revolutions begin when people who are defined as problems achieve the power to redefine the problem. There's often this incredible presumption that people are incapable of analysing their own situation and this presumption carries with it a handy rejection of the notion of actually providing resources to people to allow them to articulate their analyses uh, and proposed solutions. And yet, and yet, under the guiding stars of struggle and hope, the greatest social reforms in Australia have always been wrought by grassroots movements. Uh, as the German poet Bertolt Brecht put it, the compassion of the oppressed for the oppressed is indispensable. It is the world's one hope. But you think about it historically. Uh, no matter what the uh, social policy uh, textbooks tell you, without the organised analysis and agitation of people on the ground, we would never have seen the gains that we have made as a nation in the areas of industrial rights, women's rights, the establishment and public funding of refuges uh, for women and young people, tenants' rights, environmental justice, workers' comp, uh, Aboriginal citizenship rights, the list goes on. Everything that has been of any value in terms of social progress has been fought for from below. It was never delivered from above. It might have been formulated and legislated from above, but that was in response to agitation from below. Uh, and uh, you think about the years of the Great Depression when uh, people gathered around the homes of uh, working families who were about to be evicted and, uh, and they fought back uh, the police that were sent to carry out the law, of course, uh, and here we saw the beginning of uh, the, the, the conceptualisation of housing as a human right. Uh, we've got a hell of a long way to go, of course. But it's a, it's a very dangerous, you're looking a bit serious again here, it's a, it's a very dangerous uh, area to, to uh, be involved in uh, once you embrace that uh, conceptual framework that social justice can only really be achieved from below 
uh, it really changes the way you think about everything. Uh, I remember getting into big trouble um, again in my family context over this. Um, some years ago, we had a family meeting. Uh, my partner Jackie wanted to, very because we're such ideal parents, um, she wanted to confront the children uh, in a very um, adult and logical way about some of their uh, uh, things that they were doing wrong. So we're sitting around the table and um, uh, Jackie being um, the more logical and forthright and articulate one said, um, children, um, Papa and I have a few things we want to discuss with you and she just listed them. They weren't huge but, you know, get it out in the open, eh? And uh, our daughter, Gabriella, who was probably about, I don't know, 11, 12 at the time, listened. My son uh, just you know, stared at the ceiling. He, wasn't, he just wanted it to be over and just agree, whatever, you know. Um, but uh, Gabriella listened very patiently and then um, uh, said, uh, thank you, Mama. Um, are you finished? Because there's a few things I'd like to raise with you that <laughs> we're not happy about with you and Papa either. And... Jackie gave me one of those withering looks from across the table as if to say, you are so to blame for this. <laughs> and uh, I sort of said, I thought I'd better, you know, be a man of action here and do something. So I turned to Gabriel and I said, darling, you know, with my tough voice, darling, um, this isn't a debate because we often have family debates around it. This isn't a debate. You don't have to win points. Um, you know, we're just talking here and, uh, you know, it's not a fight. You don't need to fight back or anything like that, you know. And um, then with a, a glint in her eye and uh, a little smile forming at the corner of her lips, Gabriella, uh, you know, look, looking at me as if to say, I know you're secretly proud of me, she banged the table and said, I will never stop fighting for our rights as children. <laughs> So then, um, knowing that all was lost as far as reasonable, reasonable discussion was concerned, uh, Jackie had to take uh, immediate uh, action and sent her to her room. And um, <laughs> she came out and was willing to negotiate then, but you know, don't tell anyone that, please. Um, the 1975 Commission of Inquiry into Poverty noted that if poverty is seen as the result of structural inequality within society, any serious attempt to eliminate poverty must seek to change the conditions which produce it. It ain't rocket science. It's the obvious that I've just been saying over and over again and uh, I, I, you know, please forgive me for having done so. Um, but then where do we find within government instrumentalities the courage to do that. It was the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu who spoke of the right hand of the state as the expression of the values and desires of the market as opposed to what he called the left hand of the state being, I quote, the trace within the state of the social struggles of the past. I think it is that that we have to nurture, that we have to cling to, that we have to uh, reignite to find new social struggles because otherwise uh, the state will never have within it the ability, the knowledge, uh, the desire to bring about progressive social change that is lasting because it, it is informed by the experience 
of people on the ground. At the hands of the market that puts profits before people, people are forced underground. They resurface in our prisons and in our streets. They're forced to hock their furnishings, their personal possessions. They seek consolation in the arms of loan sharks and payday lenders. Charity may well tide them over till their next crisis, but it is justice, only justice, that will fulfil their long-term dreams. Italian political theorist Domenico Losordo wrote, democracy cannot be defined by abstracting the fate of the excluded. In a very Australian crystallisation of the same insight, uh, put in a, in a far more concrete way, I think, uh, the Reverend Dr. Giannini Gondara, uh, referring to the various iterations of the Northern Territory intervention, said, inequality cannot be addressed by the removal of control from affected people over their lives and over their land. Let's be clear. You don't build a community by attacking its people's dignity. You don't build a community up by dragging or putting people down, by disempowering and humiliating. You don't create social inclusion by further excluding people and reducing their choices even more, watching over them more, controlling them even more. And so I'll conclude with the beautiful words of Lilla Watson and a group of Aboriginal activists in Queensland in the 1970s who said, if you have come to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you do, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.